Hello, friends. I'm Wayne Shepherd, inviting you to listen to the following Bible teaching message by Paul Scharf. Paul is a church ministries representative for the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, serving in the Midwest. You'll find all of his ministry resources at sermonaudio.com slash pscharf, where he provides new content on a regular basis, including a weekly column that he writes, along with news and updates. Right now, we encourage you to follow along as we open God's Word for today's presentation. It's our prayer that the Lord God will use this teaching to bring glory to Himself and to work faith in each of our hearts. Here now with the sermon is Paul Scharf. And what an incredible moment in which we live. And God has placed each of us here for this time, even as the words were first told to Esther, perhaps God has brought you to this place for such a time as this. God has placed us here for this time, for this day, and we're thinking today with heavy hearts about uh, the events going on in Israel, which I'm sure everyone is aware of. And our focus in this hour is not going to be on the news or commentary or insight into it, or even the human aspect, and certainly we pray for those families who have lost loved ones, those who are suffering. But what I would like to share with you, as I said in the la- at the end, close of the last hour, if you're with us in Sunday school, is not commentary on what's happening there today uh, that you can't get much better version of somewhere else. But I would like to share with you some things that many of our news commentators will not tell you. In fact, probably have no idea of at all. It comes to us simply from God's holy word. In fact, from the very Hebrew scriptures of the Jewish people, uh, at least in part. And then, of course, some of it comes from the New Testament, as we call it, the Greek scriptures that are given to us by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'd like to invite you to consider a number of scriptures with me. You may want to turn there, just jot them down and listen. Perhaps go back later and search the scriptures and see if these things are so. Take, if nothing else, your study Bible and read the text. Read the notes at the bottom of the page. Just remember the notes aren't what? Inspired like the text. But consider what I say. Consider what the person who wrote the notes says, and may the Lord give you understanding in all these things. The prophet Isaiah spoke to the people of Israel in Isaiah 49, verse 6, and he said, It is a light thing, speaking from the Lord God, it is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. And here's the point I want to emphasize. God through Isaiah says to the people of Israel, I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. What was the ultimate purpose of the Old Testament nation, the theocracy of Israel, that God had built beginning with the call of Abram out of Babylon, out of Ur of the Chaldees, to build his kingdom on the earth through this man Abram and through his descendants? Was it that they would simply be an enclosed, self-contained group that would just enjoy and uh, as a reservoir just contain the blessings of God within themselves? That was never God's purpose for the people of Israel. They never fulfilled, really, his ultimate vital purpose which was for the nation of Israel to be a light to the whole world, to bring salvation to the Gentiles, to proclaim God's word to the nations, to be the missionary sending body for the whole world. Israel sadly failed. Old Testament Israel failed in that regard. You see, the only salvation God ever provided In fact, the only salvation he ever promised was for the people of Israel. When Jesus came, uh, he, he proclaimed that. He told the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15, I have not been sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He told the woman at the well, salvation is of the Jews. So you might say, well, what about 
as I am a Gentile, what about us Gentiles? Is there any hope for us? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, there was no hope for us. We had no covenants. We had no promise. Except there's hope found for us in the footnotes of the Abrahamic covenant. The very last phrase of God's covenant with Abraham, Genesis 12, 3, it says, through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, the only reason you and I as Gentiles can be saved at all is because the salvation God promised and provided to the nation of Israel through her Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Anointed One, the Eternal Son of God who came from heaven to earth to become also man, to die on the cross in your place and for your sin and mine so that we could have forgiveness of sin and eternal life in heaven with him. If we trust in him alone, bringing nothing of ourselves, but trust in him alone, Christ alone, by faith alone, he saves us by his grace alone. He'll take us to heaven forever through the new way into life that he has opened by his own resurrection. The only reason we have that claim to that gospel at all, though, is because it's God's grace is so overwhelming. It spills over the nation of Israel. It floods over the whole world. It provides salvation for everyone. God is so gracious. He is so magnanimous. He is so merciful that his salvation spreads over to the whole world and anyone can be saved. And the nation of Israel was to take that message to the world. And they utterly failed. In fact, by the time that Messiah came, they had long since really lost sight of the message entirely. They'd become concerned with all kinds of issues of their day that led to cultural and social and political divisions within Israel. These are events that happen between the pages of Malachi and Matthew, so that when we open our New Testament gospel, we meet all these different people on the streets of Jerusalem, Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and <clears throat> others, those that were zealots for Israel, those that were involved with the Roman government. But by and large, they lost, all lost sight of the message of God's grace. The just shall live by faith, which is true in the Old Testament and it's true in the New Testament. And in fact, they even perverted the message and added, turned it into a message of salvation by works. And Jesus, of course, confronted these people through the Gospels. Israel, since their rejection of Christ, is now temporarily dispersed and God has turned from Israel during this age to working through the New Testament church it's not a plan B it was always God's plan foreordained before the ages of time but it's God's purpose now to work through the church the bride of body of Christ beginning at the day of Pentecost and Jesus speaking to his disciples about these issues that we're broadly addressing here to begin, Matthew 24, 14, in his Olivet Discourse, he said that this gospel of the kingdom, and the church existed only in prospect at this time, the day of Pentecost had not yet come, the apostles are representatives of Israel still at this point, they will be the foundation for the church age, but Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Matthew twenty four fourteen. Has the church fulfilled Jesus' call and commission? Have we fulfilled the great commission that he gave us specifically after his resurrection? Go into the whole world and make disciples of everyone, teaching them and baptizing them teaching them the whole counsel of God's word, training them, establish intensive evangelistic and discipleship and training programs to take into the whole world and reach the whole world. Have we fulfilled that? What do you think, congregation? Have we fulfilled that? We have not fulfilled it. We have failed also. 
We have failed miserably in the 2,000 years of the church. That's a whole course called church history (laughs) and a whole lifetime of study to see those places where we've succeeded, those places where we failed. You personally haven't done all of it, nor me, obviously, but collectively we failed. We have not instituted Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 14, any more than the people of Israel did in the Old Testament. I want to tell you this morning, though, a story about the fact that one day there will be a group that will be raised up. They will come from within Israel, and they will succeed. Where their forefathers failed, they will succeed even where the church has failed. They will fulfill Jesus' words, and they will take this gospel to the very ends of the earth and the entire world will hear the message and it may shock you or surprise you that this will occur not during the church age but during the coming days of the tribulation i'd like to tell you this this morning at least introduce the topic of the great end time revival how many want to see a revival we'd love to have revival breakout right But there's no promise that there's going to be a revival before the rapture. Instead, the general trends that uh, the Apostle Paul tells us are coming, our perilous time shall come. People will be falling away from the faith. You know, thank God that he tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2 that we have a role that we will play until the rapture. The rapture ends the church age. It began in the day of Pentecost and it ends on the rapture. And the true church will be taken to be with Christ. How many are ready for the rapture? I've preached here about the rapture before. So if you were here, you should be ready for the rapture, right? And if you're not ready, there's only one way and you must get ready. And that's to believe the gospel that I've already shared with you and be with Christ. Because you don't want to test what it's going to be like to be here after the rapture. Because Paul says in 2 Thess 2, that right now, the Holy Spirit working through each of us as believers, we're doing what? We're restraining. We're pushing back against the evil of this world. But there will be a day when that restraint is removed. The Holy Spirit doesn't cease to be omnipresent. He's still God. But he ceases to work through the church in the unique way that he's been working in us since Pentecost. And he won't be inhabiting believers of church of the church on the earth because the whole church will be where in heaven and the restraint will be gone how many feels like it think that it feels like right now our culture just more than anything just wants all the restraint off just take all the restraint off so we can just go full throttle toward complete evil and total wickedness that's what it feels like sometimes doesn't it in a way that I don't think some of us ever thought it felt before the last few years. We are that restraint. Imagine what it will be like when there's no restraint. The church will be gone. The true church will be with Christ. Now the false church will go on. Whatever is left of a false church on the earth will still be meeting unhindered, but it will have nothing at all to do with God's work in the world. God's going to turn his work in the world. His focus is going to turn back to the people of Israel. It'll be an Israelite time. It'll be a Jewish time. It will will be a time in which God is again working through, not the church, but the nation of Israel and Israelite worship systems and programs that are based in the teachings of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. And this is the time during the tribulation, this is the time during which the great end time revival will break out. Now, let me say a couple of things that are preliminary to our going into our next text this morning. We may not, uh, well, first of all, I've looked back at what we've taught, I've taught you here in the past. And this was kind of, I had planned this before the events of yesterday to give you this talk today. And this is really logically flows from things that we've discussed in the past. So it was in God's, Uh, plan I trust uh, already are my design for us to think about these things today I think it's even more appropriate in light of the events that have happened this weekend in Israel 
And we may not cover the whole story today, but we can always pick it up, Lord willing, if he gives us another opportunity together in his providence to think about the great end time revival. And let me say this, if you want to follow more of it to the end than what we cover today, I'm actually putting this series into a series of articles. I write a weekly article or column. They run on Fridays at sharperiron.org, and two of them are up now in this series in which I'm delineating in written form the Great End Time Revival. They'll also be available on my sermon audio page and at raptureready.com. But this morning we're going to think about the first key players in the Great End Time Revival, and we'll see how far we get. The first two witnesses of the tribulation are called, in fact, by that very name, the two witnesses, the two olive trees, the two candlesticks drawing on the imagery of Zechariah chapter 4, as they're called here in Revelation chapter 11, verse 4, where we'll turn here first. There was given me a reed, John says, John the revelator writes that he had this reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Whenever you see this kind of image in prophetic scriptures, measure something, look carefully, study. It's to show us something is about to happen here related to the the object of study, the temple in this case. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Forty-two months, three and a half years. We're talking about the seven-year tribulation that follows the rapture of the church. It's divided into two halves of three and a half years each. And uh, John here is probably hearing about the second half of the tribulation during which the abomination of desolations will be poured out in the temple. The Antichrist will set himself up as God in the temple and desecrate it just as Antiochus Epiphanes had in the second century BC, which led to a Jewish uprising, which led to the celebration we call Hanukkah. And that story is told prophetically in Daniel 8, And Daniel 11, and that's not our focus this morning. Let me just back up here and say a word of context, and in fact add to something I said in the previous hour, and then we'll go directly into our text. The attacks upon Israel yesterday, for those who don't know, took place at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles on the Sabbath, on a special Sabbath day called Simchat Torah, which is explained in a little booklet from the Friends of Israel that's available on the table for you to take. And you you will hear those terms from news commentators and you can know exactly what they mean and why it's important spiritually and biblically and historically if you just read that tiny little brochure that's available on the back table, Simchat Torah. This is a very important strategic time for the people of Israel and for this to have occurred, and it takes place 50 years and one day after the launch of the Yom Kippur War of 1973, which we talked about in Sunday school, a fact that is certainly not insignificant. Uh, The Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, or ingathering, or Sukkot in Hebrew, it's the basis of our American Thanksgiving in the minds of our pilgrim fathers who gave it to us, And just as Thanksgiving and Christmas run together as the holidays in our psyche, in the Jewish mind, tabernacles and Hanukkah, though Hanukkah is not a a biblically prescribed feast in the law, it comes about, as I said, because of the desecration of the temple in the second century BC, it's prophesied in Daniel, Tabernacles and Hanukkah are their holidays for our Jewish friends. Tabernacles and Hanukkah run together as the holidays, and Jesus celebrated them as such in John chapter 7, John chapter 8, and John chapter 10. 7 and 8 tabernacles, 10 Hanukkah. So you see how important this time is and how significant this, uh, this occasion was for 
what is going on in Israel right now. And uh, it makes it all the more clear and understandable uh, to us to comprehend some of the reasons why this has happened at this time. We want to pray for the people of Israel and the peace of Jerusalem. But that peace will only come ultimately through the coming of the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus Christ, the King, the King of Israel. The purpose of the tribulation is to bring Israel, not the church, which will already be where, congregation? In heaven. The church will already be in heaven. The tribulation has no purpose for the church. The church will be absent. But the purpose of the tribulation is to bring Israel to repent, to receive her king and his kingdom when he returns. And the Bible says that at the moment he does return, Zechariah 12.10, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as as one mourns for an only son. And they will turn to him in faith, some at that very last instant. And the Bible says that all Israel will be saved. That means that the whole nation, as it's constituted at the very end of the tribulation, the whole nation will be saved. That doesn't mean the whole nation that begins the tribulation will be saved. Certainly doesn't mean that every Jewish person who's ever lived, even if they've rejected the Messiah, will be saved. It means that those who are alive at that moment, at the end of the tribulation, the nation as it exists at that time, all of Israel will be saved. How do we get there? Well, the tribulation begins, and here's another passage before we go back to Revelation 11. I just want to point you to Daniel chapter 9. The 70 weeks passage, this could be the subject of this hour and much more. I'm just going to allude to it here, let you again go home and read and study more about it. But the 70 weeks of Daniel, 70 weeks of seven years each, 490 years, the first 483 are complete in history. They ended, I believe, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the first Palm Sunday They began when Nehemiah received the command from Artaxerxes to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. But that seventh week, that week of seven years, the last one is still hanging out there. It's the tribulation, seven years. The rapture ends the church age. The rapture doesn't begin the tribulation, technically. What begins the tribulation? After the rapture, there'll be the signing of a covenant. Daniel 9.27, the Antichrist, the prince who is coming, the future Roman prince in the context, will confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in that is the 70th week, this last period of seven years. And in the midst of the week, in the middle of the week, at the midpoint of the tribulation, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. That is, meat offering and grain offerings. They'll be ceased by his breaking the covenant in the middle of the tribulation. If breaking the covenant ends meat offering and grain offering, that means making the covenant must have allowed for meat offering and grain offering. And then he'll turn to the overspreading of abominations. He'll abominate the temple. He'll commit the abomination of desolations. He'll set himself up as God in the temple. 2 Thessalonians 2. He shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. In other words, the nation of Israel has to exist. It has to be present in the land, reconstituted as a nation, drawn back to the land from her dispersion for the tribulation to begin. Has Israel come back into the land? And they have to be back there in unbelief. To make a covenant with the Antichrist. Is Israel today back in the land reconstituted as a nation in unbelief? Well, obviously, yes. Most of us have lived most of our lifetimes with Israel in that place, back in the land in unbelief, where they are today, where they, as a nation, can make a covenant with the Antichrist to begin the tribulation. Now, I believe very soon after the rapture, 
very quickly, the two witnesses will appear on the streets of Jerusalem. Notice them here in Revelation 11. Verse 3, the Lord God through the Apostle John says, I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three square days. That's 1260 days. That's, that's um, with 30 year, excuse me, 30 day months. That's 42 months. That's um, three and a half years. The first three and a half years, I believe, of the tribulation. A thousand two hundred and three square days. 1260 days. Clothed in sackcloth. Who are these men? Who are these two amazing witnesses who will arrive on the streets of Jerusalem shortly after the rapture? John says, these are the two olive trees. Again, drawing on the, uh, the language of Zechariah chapter 4. We won't turn there this morning. The two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, now this is the only clue we have to go on of who these men are or what they'll be like. If any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. Sounds like they have supernatural strength, doesn't it? And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. In other words, these men will be untouchable, invincible, in the hand of God, for three and a half years on the streets of Jerusalem, defying the Antichrist, witnessing for the Lord God. You know, he never leaves himself without a witness. He always has a witness. When the church is gone, there will be just a moment when there's no witness on the earth. Well, there will be the silent witness of Sunday school books and Bibles. Uh, maybe VCY TV and radio will be running for a while. I don't know how all that works. Sermon audio will still be on the internet for a while. Maybe someone can hear my voice somewhere in the world after the rapture. But there will be no human witness at all until God sends these two witnesses down onto the streets in the city of Jerusalem, outside the temple. Now who are these men? Verse 6 describes them. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not, in the days of their prophecy and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Does that, do those descriptions remind you of anyone? How about Moses and Elijah? And we could go into much background about both these men. They, have, uh, they both had very uh, interesting, certainly, ministries very difficult ministries, um, very low points in their life. Both of them asked God to take their lives at one point or another because their ministry was so overwhelming and the response they felt that they had received was so underwhelming. Both of these men had great frustrations. Both of them had sort of truncated careers. And they sort of ended unexpectedly. Now you might say, well, Elijah was taken directly to heaven. He was sort of raptured. His career ended very gloriously and he didn't even have to die. We can talk about this afterward. I actually think Elijah, like Enoch in the book of Genesis, I think both of them did technically die because no one went to heaven before Jesus came and did his work on the cross uh, he tells us that John three thirteen, no one has ascended to heaven but the son of man and I think that uh, Enoch and Elijah went where all pre-cross believers went that is as Jesus tells us in Luke 16 the story of uh, the rich man and Lazarus, they went to Abraham's bosom. They went to paradise, which was then a compartment of Sheol Hades, what we call hell in English, but it was a special compartment, not a place of suffering. And Jesus, after his resurrection, took paradise up to the third heaven. Paul tells us in Second Corinthians 
12 that paradise and the third heaven are now the same place. And there's scriptures that seem to indicate that Jesus at his resurrection lifted paradise up from some place where it had been in the bowels of the universe all the way up to God's presence in heaven. So now when a believer dies, absent from the body is present with the Lord. We go to the third heaven where God is. But I think Enoch and Elijah, they didn't go directly to be with the Lord, but they went to the place called Abraham's bosom. And they, didn't, they weren't raptured, and they, in some sense, died, perhaps without even realizing it. God separated their body from their spirit. Deuteronomy 34 tells us how Moses also died very mysteriously. God, in essence, killed him and buried him. Maybe that gives us insight into what happened to uh, Enoch or Elijah. But the description appears to me to be of Elijah and Moses which fits exactly with the prophetic scriptures. For instance, the book of Malachi tells us in chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, you can turn or just listen and take a note as I read. Malachi 4, beginning in verse 4, Malachi ends the Hebrew scriptures and the whole Old Testament uh, economy by saying this, Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb, for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. And then behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, remember Moses and Elijah were the two that met with Jesus and the apostles on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that? Matthew 17 There was an earlier incident in the life of our Lord in Matthew chapter 11 in which John, who some thought was Elijah, in Matthew 11 verse 2, in verse 3, he sends word to Jesus and he said, Are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? If so, why am I sitting here in prison? And remember what Jesus said, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. Verse 4. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. And that was the end of John, the man that Jesus said is the greatest man who has ever lived on the earth. And the disciples asked Jesus about this. And Jesus said, verse 14 of Matthew 11, If you will receive it, this is Elias. He's Elijah. If you would have received him, he'd be Elijah, which was for to come. But you didn't, so he isn't. And Elijah must still come. This is what Jesus told the disciples at the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17. When they asked him, verse 10, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? And Jesus answered and said to them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already. And they knew him not. But have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. In other words, if you'd have been willing to receive it, I believe John would have fulfilled the prophecies for the coming of Elijah. But the people of Israel didn't receive him, so he wasn't Elijah. And Elijah must still come. And Moses must come back. If these men are Moses and Elijah, that means they are resuscitated. Like Lazarus, when Jesus resurrected him, but not in a glorified body, as will be resurrected if those who are the dead in Christ at the rapture, they'll be resurrected and glorified in a new body. That didn't happen to Lazarus. He was just resuscitated, brought back. He had to die all over again. He lived his life part two with death in the middle. How many hope you don't have to go through that? These two witnesses, if indeed they're Moses and Elijah, that means they're going to be resuscitated. Just like Lazarus, only with a much longer gap in the middle. And they're going to come back, and they're going to succeed now, as I said, where Israel failed, where the church is failing, 
where their ministries previously seemed fruitless or futile, they will now have ministries that are off the charts, unbelievable. They are going to be untouchable for three and a half years, ministering on the streets of Jerusalem. We know very little about what they're going to say or what they're going to do because the text cuts immediately to what? Their deaths. When they finish their testimony, it's almost as if they will serve their purpose under God for his glory and they will die and that's all we need to know right now. Is there any clue beyond that of what they're going to accomplish? And I think the answer to that, though, is yes, there is. And it's found in Revelation 7. And with this, we'll end this morning and our day together just thinking for the next few minutes about the people that I believe the two witnesses will call to serve the Lord under them to take the gospel to the whole world in fulfillment of Jesus' words and bring about the end after the whole world has heard the gospel. I'm referring, of course, to the 144,000. Now, some of you, maybe you have a background or a, a, an understanding, at least, where you say 144,000. That sounds weird, because when you get into talking about the 144,000, you're talking about things cultists talk about and so forth. Well, let me tell you, the problem with the cultists is not that they take the Bible literally, it's that they don't take the Bible literally. That's how they get weird interpretations. If we take it literally, it's very clear and very plain and very simple and very wonderful. The 144,000, their story is told in Revelation 7 and 14. So you can add those chapters to your list to go and read and study and search the scriptures. The 144,000 are these who are sealed in their foreheads as the servant of God. Chapter 7, verse 3. You know, some have conjectured that the mark of the beast that will be offered at the middle of the tribulation is a kind of a cheap knockoff version of the seal that the 144,000, he sees that and says, that's pretty neat, I'm going to do that with my servants. And he makes the whole world take the mark of the beast in the right hand of their forehead. But the original is found here. It's God the Father has the seal of God in their foreheads. And it seems like that's explained over in chapter 14, where the second place we have these young men described, that they have his father's name, the father's name, written in their foreheads. Revelation 14, verse 1. These are sealed 144,000 from all the tribes of the children of Israel. And then it goes in verses 5 through 8 and it lists the tribes. And sure enough, there's 12 tribes named and 12,000 from each. And I think if my old math is still correct, 12 times 12,000 is 144,000, right? Now, you say there's some interesting things, though, as we look at these tribes. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail. But uh, let's talk about this because maybe you have a question or someone will ask you. Uh, how do you come up with these tribes where, for instance, you have Joseph and also his son Manasseh, but not his son Ephraim? And then you have Levi listed, who's not usually listed in the list of tribes because they don't own land and so forth. And they're the priestly class. Every priest is a Levite. Not every Levite is a priest. You all remember that. And so you have Levi getting here into the list, and you end up with 12 names. You say, what's going on here? Someone said, ah, I get it. There's no Dan listed. The tribe of Dan is absent. That means the tribe of Dan will produce the Antichrist. The problem with that is when you get to the last chapter of Ezekiel, the millennial list includes Dan. That kind of shoots that theory, doesn't it? You say, well, what, who are these tribes? Well, you, here, here's the clue. Here's the key. There are, there are 14 names for the 12 tribes of Israel because you have the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob, 
And then Joseph has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who sort of replace him. And then you pull Levi out because they don't own land and do some of the other things. And so you have 12 names with Ephraim and Manasseh. But as you go through the Hebrew scriptures, you have many different renditions of the list of the 12 tribes. And you know they're not all the same. If you want to do a real serious Bible study sometime, maybe this winter if you're going to take a month off and sit by the fireplace, you could just take every afternoon and do this Bible study for a while. First of all, locate all the lists. Okay, get all the lists, all the places where you have the list. And then denote each time which 12 tribes are listed in each list. You'll notice there's tremendous variation among the lists. And you know what the point to me is? The clue to understanding all of this? God likes variety when he describes his chosen people of Israel. So he likes to make the list a little different, different times. And the sum total of it, however you include 12 of the 14 names in whatever order and purpose, is that you've got all the tribes of the children of Israel, verse 4. In the mind of God, this comprises the whole nation of Israel. See, the tribes haven't been lost. God knows who each one is, even if an individual Jewish person today doesn't know their tribe. And the two witnesses, I believe, will first of all identify people from the 12 tribes. They'll identify them. And then they'll do what? They'll evangelize them. Because, you see, the two witnesses will appear supernaturally. This is how God's going to restart his Israelite program on the earth in the tribulation following the rapture. He's going to send supernaturally the two witnesses. And God's program for Israel is back. The 144,000 don't come supernaturally. They come naturally. These are young Jewish men who, get this, have missed the rapture. They don't know the Messiah. If that means, congregation, if the rapture is tonight, how many would be ready? Okay, I'll see about three hands. How many would be ready for the rapture tonight? How many have a problem the rapture wouldn't solve? Anyone? Hope not. If the rapture is tonight, do these young men have to be alive today? Yes, they do. They have to be alive to miss the rapture. If they're going to come naturally. Not the two witnesses, but the 144,000. If the rapture is tonight, do they have to be alive on the earth today? Yes, to, be, to become the, the 144,000. That means they're alive, but they don't know the Messiah. They don't know Jesus. They're not going to in the rapture. It's not that they're left here because God just leaves them here, even though they're believers. They're going to be unbelievers. But notice some things we can know about them. Revelation 14, verse 4. And I'll let you read the context. Where our time is running out. I'll let you go home and read the chapter, read the context, read your study Bible notes. But these are they which were not defiled with women. They're redeemed from the earth, verse 3, and they're not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. They were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits. Critical word there, first fruits. Unto God and to the Lamb. In other words, these young men are kept from defilement. They are kept from debilitating, disqualifying sin. Even in a state of unbelief. Even not only before the rapture, but after the rapture. Can you imagine what life on the earth will be like after the rapture, during the tribulation, when all restraints are gone? Can you imagine what the temptations will be like? Can you imagine what will be on television? What will be on radio? What will be on the internet? What will be out on the streets, everywhere, in all places? What will be coming from the government? But God keeps these young men through it all. Remember, they weren't believers before the rapture. They come to faith, I believe, through the ministry of who? The two witnesses, who identify and evangelize them. 
and they come to faith in their Messiah, God has providentially prepared them for this role. Perhaps these are very unique, at least some of them unique, young Jewish men, perhaps of the Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox, and perhaps unique even in, their, even in that place. Perhaps somehow receiving an education like the Apostle Paul did back in his day in which he had most likely memorized all of the Hebrew Scriptures. Perhaps they will have a background like that. And God will have providentially prepared them in the most incredible way than to step forward and become the 144,000 witnesses. The two witnesses will identify them. They will evangelize them. I believe they will train and commission them to go out into the whole world as the 144,000 witnesses. They are the first fruits unto God. First fruits of what? That, that implicates there's going to be what? A tremendous harvest, right? These are just the first fruits. First fruits of what? Well, there's the first fruits of the ultimate harvest of the people of Israel, right? By the end of the tribulation, all Israel will be saved. That's an outflow of their ministry. But there's also one other one. And we'll just close with this. Perhaps you've never really given sufficient time to meditate on this idea. I'll leave it with you to continue after today. Again, as I keep saying, I believe it's more than uh, a strong inference that we can draw from Revelation chapter 7, where we've been looking at the 144,000, to the lead-in in the next verse... The 144,000, I believe, are the first fruits of a great multitude. A great multitude, which no man can number. Now, in Revelation 9.16, we find that you can number 200 million. If you can number 200 million, you'd think we could number 3, 4, 7, 8, 900 million, right? It appears to me, again, the inference is that in Revelation 7, verse 9, we must be talking about more than what? A billion people. Now, there aren't a billion Jewish people on the earth. This isn't the Jewish salvation of Israel, in which all Israel is saved, which doesn't occur until the end of the tribulation when it's finally complete. This seems to be in the middle of the tribulation, verse 12, at the time when the Antichrist persecutes all believers and kills them, that upward of a billion Gentile people will be saved during the tribulation through the ministry of the two witnesses and the 144,000 witnesses. A great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, who stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Verse 14, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I'll let you read the rest of the chapter on your own. There's so many things that we could think of in conclusion about all these people that I've described to you this morning as best that I can. I just want to make one application in closing. We can learn from the scriptures. The Bible says what, that everything that was written in the past was written for our learning so that we, through the understanding of the scriptures, could have hope. We could be motivated to serve the Lord in our time by looking back these things were examples for us, Paul says. We look back at what has happened in history and we're to be encouraged and exhorted and motivated, challenged to live today. You know, we can do the same thing with what's the history that's recorded of the future, the prophetic future. That's like history written in advance. 
we can look at what's coming, these that are coming in the future, the two witnesses, the 144,000, the great multitude, which we really haven't finished this morning, but the 144,000, let's think of them in particular. We can look ahead to those and say, I want to be like that today. Because you see, that will be their time. It will be magnificent beyond description. But this is our time. This is the only time we'll ever have. God's put us here, placed us here for such a time as this. And let me say this, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, after the rapture, you have an appointment with God. Did you know that? You are going to stand and give, as Wesley wrote in the great hymn, you're going to stand and give a very strict account of your life. Because to whom much is given, much will be required. It won't determine whether you go to heaven or hell. Praise God, you'll already be in heaven if you've been taken in the rapture. That question's off the table. But you will stand and give an account for what you have done, what I have done, with the time, the resources, the opportunities, the abilities God has given us. This is our time to use them as we never have before. I don't think we need any more wake-up calls or or uh, practice runs, or practice laps. We've seen enough in the last few years to know it appears that time is short. Opportunities are great. And we will stand before the Lord and tell him what we've done in this time he's placed us. And so, Father, I pray that you will help us today to live with a view of standing before you and showing our love for you by what we can evidence that we have done with our lives to serve you. Pray that you'll challenge each one here today. If there's someone who uh, has never yet trusted in Christ, I pray this will be the day of their salvation. And Lord, for all of us who do know you and testify to that, I pray it will be a day of recommitting ourselves to serving you with this precious time that you've given us. And I pray, the Lord, that you'll take these words that I've spoken today and use them to bring glory to yourself. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.